90% of the country is actually pretty happy with their healthcare because they don't use it that much. Therefore, of course, 90% of the country, if somebody said, do you think we should negotiate with Medicare? I'd be like, yeah, sure. That sounds good. Yeah, right. (laughs) Good idea. Yeah. But when you really look at it, it's those of us who use our healthcare and need it to work and need it to cover things that don't bankrupt us who need to take action and band together. Welcome to the FUMS Now podcast show, where you'll gain information, inspiration, and motivation for living your best life with multiple sclerosis. Find us online at FUMSnow.com. I'm your host, Kathy Reagan-Young. I'm excited to talk with my guest today, Terry Wilcox, as the co-founder and executive director of Patients Rising. Terry helps patients find their voice and become outspoken advocates for their healthcare. She manages all of the day-to-day operations for the organization and is the visionary behind all of Patient Rising's programs, including Patients Rising University, Patients Rising Concierge, Institute for Patient Access and Affordability Project, and the policy and advocacy work of Patients Rising. She has a track record of building coalitions with patients, caregivers, and medical professionals. A regular opinion writer on health policy and how it affects patients, she's been published in the Boston Globe, The Hill, Morning Consult, Cranes, New York, Real Clear Health, and The American Thinker, and much more. Terry's career in patient advocacy was inspired by her mentor, Selma Schimmel, considered by many the original young adult survivor advocate. As executive director for Vital Options International, Terry advanced Selma's legacy at the nonprofit Career Communication education and advocacy organization. Terry lives in the Washington, D.C. area with her husband, Jonathan, and twin boys, Jackson and James. Welcome, Terry. Well, thank you. That was quite an intro. That was quite an intro. You're a busy, busy, busy lady. That made me a little tired just to read it, but you're doing it, so I bet you're tired. So much patient advocacy work. What brought you to that as a career? I don't think anybody uh, gets out of high school and or in any part of their life and says, I'm going to be a patient advocate. I mean, there's usually some kind of inciting event. Either they themselves have an illness that causes them to use the healthcare system quite a bit. And that would be me. That's how I backed into You are that example. (laughs) Yes. Or they have a family member or friend Mm -hmm. at the, you know, at the time. I was in production actually in LA. I booked celebrities for award shows and worked at a video game network. So I did not, um, I was not doing any patient advocacy, obviously, during that time. But while I was doing my work at the video game network, I was, I realized when I was working around, I was in my 30s at the time, and I was working around all these 20 something whippersnapper, you know, great millennials that were just on top of everything and very smart. And I realized that I was, I had not advanced past Pac Man. You know, and I was really not <laughs> supposed to be so, you know, that's I was not supposed yeah. to represent video games. <laughs> um, and it was not fulfilling for that reason. I didn't know enough about it to be, and I wasn't inspired to really learn anymore. You and so when you're not inspired, fire. yeah, yeah. So there was no fire lit when I was yeah. doing that, even though I loved where I learned a ton about geek culture and I loved my time <laughs> that I worked there. I am very geeky and because of my experience at G4, but <laughs> I left G4, started my own production company, and did a cancer uh, show called Understanding Cancer. 
And I, we did a series of videos for these tablets and cancer clinics. We tried to pitch it to television and we were just constantly told nobody wants to watch a television show about cancer. Too depressing. Um, Anyway, we did over a hundred videos. I traveled all over very rural parts of Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, doing all of this, you know, all of this storytelling of these patients going through their cancer experiences. And it was really moving to me. And at the same time, my mom was also taking care of her sister who is mentally and physically disabled and Mm -hmm. my grandmother who had been her primary caregiver her entire life. And now my grandmother was aging Mm -hmm. and unable to care for her. And just all of the roadblocks and stuff, my mom, watching my mom as a caregiver go through all of that while simultaneously being completely moved by this entire cancer community when I was doing those, those videos. Yeah. The crash of 2008 happened and we did not continue doing the videos, but I met Selma Schimmel, who you talked about in the intro and she was in LA. She ran an organization called Vital Options. She did a cancer talk radio show. She was very into the communications of cancer Mm -hmm. and which was my thing. Obviously that's what I came from. Right. So Selma and I met and I immediately started working with her and I went all over the world with her and all over Europe, let's just say Europe and the United States. I went to a lot of different locations with Selma. We interviewed key opinion leaders in cancer across the globe. And what I came away from that was, was I really got steeped in the innovation of it all, right? I really was learning about the innovations that were happening. Mm. While simultaneously, you know, video was up and coming. I turned Selma's radio show into a video show, video Mm. show, and we did, you know, hundreds of videos with her. Mm in that respect. And then someone passed away in 2014. And that is how I became executive director of my own organization. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, by that point, um, so, you know, I was really steeped in the policy. I, my husband and I moved to DC and I really loved the policy. I still love the policy. I think that's Mm -hmm. where change happens. I think that's where, you know, I feel like we need to get just as innovative with how we pay for healthcare and how we deliver healthcare as we are with the science of healthcare. You know, with the innovations. Yes, yes. So that is where we focus our energy now. We try to help advocates. As I always say, we cannot do it alone. You know, nobody cares just about what patients rise against. It has to say we have to have a collective voice across Mm -hmm. districts around the country. Um, And so that's where we where we focus now. And so I sort of fell into it. Yeah, I fell into it. I now you know, and I got very steeped also in the young adult cancer movement. And by the time I finished that, I knew just probably 25 or 30 young adults just in my time of really being steeped in that world who had passed away. And that really devastated me. Yeah. Yeah. Really devastated me. I had some really good friends I lost during that time and that definitely moved me um, as well. Yeah. And so that lights your fire and you are on fire for this advocacy and activism and, and moving it that way. So I'm so interested to hear what's going on in Washington. Let's get down to it. What in the hell is going on in Washington? Wait, that's way too broad. No one can answer that. What in the hell is going on in Washington in terms of healthcare legislation, you know, patient rights, Medicare, Medicaid, Um, health insurance, prior auth, sleep, yeah, everything. What's going on that impacts us? (laughs) Well, there's a ton. I mean, obviously, we passed the infrastructure bill. And now we're in the process. The Build Back Better bill did pass 
the House. The House. Um, it passed the House and it's gone over to the Senate. And now there's a variety of, of things happening in the Senate. And I'll get a little more, you know, I'll get a little bit wonky here. But yes. I'll, I'm going to try to break it down as simply as possible so okay. that your audience can kind of understand the ins and outs of Congress. Um, the Senate is back in session to look at the House's version of the Build Back Better plan, also known by to many as the social spending plan. <laughs> and a major component, this is obviously a major component of the president's and the Democrats' agenda for the, mm-hmm. you know, for their term. And while the two chambers of Congress work in tandem to pass this leg- legislation, they op- operate extremely, they operate very differently with different sets of rules. It's very complicated. So the umpire of the legislative rule book is the parliamentarian. Okay. I have to get a little wonky because just so you guys right. can kind of understand. Yeah, no, this is the, confusing. Yeah. The parliamentarian is a nonpartisan figure who determines if what the Congress members want to do is allowed. Because under the rules and procedures of that chamber, mm-hmm. um, the cost for anybody, you know, the cost, how how it how it's all going to work. Um, so there's several things that are under discussion and could be on the chopping block. Include these include caps for increases on drug prices. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Good. You know, everybody's excited to hear. Oh, we're going to negotiate with Medicare. We're going yes. to lower the cost of drugs. I'm here to tell everybody, unfortunately, on this podcast that there is no guarantee of that. Yeah. Nothing they're doing will promises that. Mm. And all they're really doing is extracting more rebates out of drug companies so that they can pay for their social spending bill. They're not actually lowering anybody's price at the pharmacy counter. If they were, it would be worded, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to demand that AbbVie charge this for Humira or whatever, fill in blank, whatever the top 10 drugs are. And you're going to benefit from that by only having to pay your 20% off our new price. It doesn't say that. That's not in there. Doesn't say that. Doesn't, there's no guarantee of that because your, your price is still going to be off the list price. And just because the government is negotiating Medicare prices, that does not mean the list price is going to change. Mm-hmm. The list price is not going to change. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, there's nothing in there that guarantees that the negotiated price is what you're going to pay your cost. Mm. Damn so it, I just burst my bubble. I'm I was sorry. so excited. I'm, don't be excited. First of all, it's only 10 <laughs> drugs. All it's going to do is really kill innovation. It's not going to help anybody. <sighs> the thing that would have helped people, which is the rebate passed through at the pharmacy counter, and that's where they would have, that's where they actually demand that you pay your coinsurance on the on, on the price after rebates. They've killed that. They so that was, killed it. to be clear, that was in the original bill. It was in the original. First of all, that passed last. That passed at the end of the Trump administration, or last summer. It passed okay. last year. Okay. It was supposed to go into effect, maybe this year or at the beginning of 2022. I think maybe at the beginning of 2022 okay. it was supposed to start because it passed towards the end of the year. So they wouldn't have started at January one. So I think it was supposed to start coming up. Okay. In the infrastructure bill, they killed it through 2026. And they said, the, the infrastructure bill said, we're going to kill this. We're not going to enact this rebate pass-through rule from the Trump administration because that's how we're going to pay for $50 billion of our, uh, of what we want to expend money on. Mm-hmm. It does, but there's no, what they're spending money on is not helping patients at the pharmacy counter. Mm-hmm. There are Tesla charging stations. That's what I mean. We make jokes about yeah. that all the time, but that's really true because there is a general fund and then there's Medicare Part A. 
mm-hmm. that's separated out, you know, that you can't touch, but mm-hmm. everything else is in a general fund. You know, mm. so who knows what it's paying for? What it's not paying for is lowering your price, the pharmacy count. Okay. And then in the Build Back Better bill, they take it again and they say they kill it forever. They never enact it. And that's how they use to pay for it. So they they never enact that 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 thing. And that's that's actually the only really true cost savings that they can give patients at the pharmacy counter. And they say, oh, we can't do that because we're gonna have to raise you know, premiums, they're raising premiums anyway. Yeah. They're raising premiums anyway. And they're blaming it on a, an Alzheimer's drug produced that recently was approved by Biogen Mm -hmm. that they haven't even made a deal to cover yet. Mm. So it's all monkey math. And I hate it to show, I, I hate to disappoint everyone. Oh, but it's that's what the, we need to know the reality because you know, I bought the reality into it. Is anybody who tells you negotiating with Medicare in this deal, you're going to save money at the pharmacy counter. I want somebody to send me an email and tell me about their great savings if this is enacted. And I, I will eat my words. I will <laughs> and I'll eat have my words, you back on. And I'll have you words. back on. I'll have you back on. <laughs> yeah. If you can find me a, a real meaningful, you know, vehicle where there's a bunch of patients who are like, no, Terry, we actually are saving money. I will tout that. And I will say that happens. However, not that many patients will save money. It's only 10 drugs. Right. It's very wonky. Who knows how it's going to happen? And only 5% of patients are on those biologics. So like, is it true? Like immediately my mind goes to, well, why is that? We we need, we know what we need. We know what the public wants. Why is it that this can't happen? Is it true that you follow the money? Is it because the Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association has so much skin in this game and they're paying for, you know, campaigns and that sort of thing? Is that what this comes Mm -hmm. down to? No. Well, I mean, this is, if this passes, this kills pharmaceutical. This is actually bad for pharma. Mm. Terrible for pharma. Okay. This is terrible for me. This kills, I mean, this will, uh, you won't even know. They've already said it'll kill at least 60 drugs over the next 10 years. Something like that won't, won't be innovated because of the cuts to pharma. No, who this benefits is insurers and PBMs. (sighs) There's no pharmaceutical company actually that's in the top 25, I believe, of the Fortune 500. There may be J&J, but you want to know who is in the top 25 of the Fortune 500? Actually, number five is United Healthcare. Number four is CVS. Mm. Okay, it's not pharma. It's actually not pharma. And I don't say that because pharma provides us funding. I say that because that's the truth. Mm-hmm. It's actually not, it, it, this isn't, this isn't, this is all benefiting insurers and PBMs and, and quite frankly, the government. The government mm-hmm. is just as addicted to these rebates as everybody else. Because mm-hmm. mm. if they weren't, they would pass those savings on to you at the pharmacy counter. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of things they can do. The government has the right to look at the PBM contracts and look at the money that they're bringing in from rebates, but they don't do it. They don't do it because it benefits them. Mm. Mm -mm. You know, I hate, you know, and that's both parties. That's a nonpartisan statement I'm making. That's everybody. Everybody's in the game on that. Yeah. So it's an unfortunate, you know, that's unfortunate, but true. You know, and then there's organizations like AARP who are in the pocket of United Healthcare. Oh. AARP, you know, is is on track to get a billion dollars in kickbacks from United Healthcare for pushing their plans. Holy cow! Uh, in a year, they don't. Your magazine prescription subscription. Sorry, your your magazine <laughs> subscription 
to AARP is not what pays their turns their lights on. It's right. United Healthcare. United Healthcare basically owns them in many ways. Wow, wow. So wow. they're not there. They're not an organization for seniors. If they were for seniors, they would they would be out there demanding rebate faster at the pharmacy counter, but they're not mm. because their funders don't want that. Wow. You are shining so, a light for sure. I love to shine a light. I wish more people would let me shine this light because it's actually true. Yeah. Now, I will debate anyone any day on this. There's, they, they, you know, if pharma has its own skeletons in the closet and pharma's got lots of money and they can take care of themselves. I'm not here to defend pharma, but I am here to say, you know, there's these other actors yeah. and they're actually making a lot more money. Right. A lot yeah. more money. Yeah. Um, and they're not producing anything. At least pharma's producing right. medicines that are right. helping us. Yeah. I mean, they're not producing anything. Yeah. The other thing that's on the chopping block of this situation, which would be good, is we think a $35 monthly cap on insulin, which sounds good to many. Mm. Let's have a $35 cap on. However, Uh-oh. there's another thing I will I will tell you. Terry, we you can, are the bearer of bad news today. I was so excited about what I was hoping news. was going to be good news. Okay. No, no, uh, we well, want no, the it's truth. Tell news. us. It's not bad okay. news. The $35 cap is, is good news for many. I mean, when you're talking yeah. about a $300 yeah. vial of insulin. Right. But if you look at the insulin prices, insulin manufacturers, and there's a great guy, if anybody's really interested in wonky drug pricing named Adam Fine, that everybody should follow on Twitter because he's excellent at this and does amazing reports and he's spot on. But insulin prices, even though the list price has risen to almost $300 a vial, the net price that the drug manufacturers are making goes down every year because they're because of the competition between the three companies that produce insulin. Their rebate kickback is huge mm-hmm. at 80%. I'm going to use the example of 80%, though I've heard 85 and 90% is often more like it. So a $35 monthly cap on insulin, let's just do very simple math. Right now, if you paid 20% of list price on your insulin and it was $300, that would be $60, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if they did rebate pass through at the pharmacy counter and the PBM was paying $60, your cost should only be $12. Mm-hmm. So as far as I'm concerned, the PBM's already getting all the money from it. And if you're paying 20%, you're already paying what the PBM is shelling out for it mm-hmm. for it. So it's it, it's a total shell game as well. I Another hate to say shell it. Game. we can do better. We can do better than $35. Quite frankly, as cheap as as little as pharma pharma makes on insulin and as much as the PBMs and insurers do make, it should be free. It literally should be free, in my opinion. The doors to the Patients Getting Paid membership community are now wide open. This is a community of people with chronic illness learning to find and create flexible remote work that accommodates their health. I call us chronicpreneurs. There are trainings, coaching calls, networking opportunities, co-workings, and a ton of resources. Want to take better care of yourself and still generate an income? Join us at patientsgettingpaid.com. Terry, you are, what's coming to mind for me is, um, what is it? The Wizard of Oz, like, don't look behind the curtain. And you are pulling it back and going, look behind the curtain. Like, what's going on here? It's fascinating and disappointing, but fascinating. Well, a lot of times people don't want to talk about it because, 
you know, some, uh, some other advocacy organizations don't want to get to get this much into the weeds on price. And I understand why you get tar, you become a target when you get into the weeds on price. Mm-hmm. You're a shelter farmer. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. Well, I've gotten to the point where I've been told that enough. I don't really care anymore. Mm-hmm. I actually don't care. Like shell it out at me. Yeah. It's fine. I, I, I would rather s- speak what I know to be the truth, which mm-hmm. is the biggest things that you could do for patients. You're not doing because of kickbacks and money and all the, you know, all yeah. of the, that, you know, wealth and yeah. kickback and, you know, greed within the supply chain and mm-hmm. the patients are the ones left holding the bag. Mm-hmm. And then you want to stick That's it all always. and blame it all on pharma and cut innovation. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't see the, you know, mm-hmm. and the transparency rule for PBMs that they're, that's also on the chopping block. They don't need a transparency rule for PBMs. Quite frankly, if they really wanted PBM transparency, they could demand it. They're the government. Mm-hmm. They pay the PBMs. They already mm-hmm. can look at those contracts. They can already have all the transparency they want. They don't really want to do it. It's sort of like the hospital transparency rule where you hear like 90% of hospitals are not even compliant. Jeez. Mm. You know, it, 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 it's it's sad, but there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. There's a lot of work to do. Oh, God, and this yes. is the kind of stuff that patients need to be able to look at the ads at night that are running about bad pharma and bad this and bad that with all the scary music and know that it's all total it's not, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not all there. It's, mm-hmm. There's not a lot of there there, so to speak, <laughs> right? I like that. Yeah. So do you have any good news for us? <laughs> is there anything well, good going good on is, we can look forward the to? The good news is, I mean, the good news is that there is more awareness happening. You know, okay. the good news mm-hmm. is, the good news is, is that, you know, people are getting more active. People are getting, are catching on to the game. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I and, think a lot of that has to do with shows like yours and blogs and and patient advocacy. Our, our patient advocacy masterclass is training a lot of of patient advocates, and patient advocates are just getting savvier. Yeah, and they're starting to more boldly be able to call a spade a spade. And this isn't real transformation in drug pricing, yeah, or support for patients. It just isn't. Yeah. And that's so important. And and at the end of this interview, I want to give everybody your URL and wherever else, how to find you and get in touch with you and learn more about your organization. And and we're going to find out what exactly we can do. And I love what you just said, like you're training advocates and, you know, things are becoming we're becoming better educated. And that's how change starts. Right. We get educated. Mm-hmm. We you know, ignorance is bliss in some situations. This isn't one of them. And, um, you know, we can claim ignorance because we've kind of been kept in an ignorance situation, but now there are opportunities to learn and find out and come out from underneath our rocks. And, you know, there's, once you've learned these things, you don't, you can't unring that bell. And once you know, then I feel as if you have an obligation to do something about it. And I'm sure you agree with that. Um, oh, absolutely. There, there's things yeah, you can absolutely. do from home. I mean, you don't have to travel to, you know, your state legislature or D.C. There's things you can do from home, right? Yeah, well, there's a ton of stuff you can do. Number one thing you can do, if you're part of the more than 50% of Americans in this country who are covered by an employer-sponsored plan, if your employer-sponsored plan is 
costing a lot of money and not giving you a lot of benefit, implementing step therapy, prior authorization, this, that, and the other, you need to have conversations with your HR department. Mm-hmm. You know, write letters to your own HR department because that's one of the things that we're working on next year is getting more engaged with the employer community mm-hmm. and the independent benefit design community. Because the truth is there's two people, a lot of people like to say the payers are insurers. As far as I'm concerned, insurers are middlemen, PBMs are middlemen. They're all middlemen. Mm-hmm. The payers, yeah. you know who the payers are? Well, the government's a payer. It's the number one payer, obviously, mm-hmm. because of Medicare and Medicaid. Right. The other payer is is patients right. and their families, right? Yep. And um, pay and pay and pay. And the other and the other payer, other major payer, I would say it goes government, then the second major payer are employers. Mm-hmm. Employers providing all the healthcare for mm-hmm. folks in this country. Mm-hmm. And they're getting hit with premium increases of 26 to 43% a year. And so now they're implementing things. Employers, unfortunately, love things like copay accumulators because that's the first kickback a PBM's ever given them. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, and they're tr- they're struggling as well. So mm. how can we as a patient community engage with employers, engage with independent benefit designers, engage with regular insurers who are willing to have meaningful conversations around benefit design because benefit design is where the problems lie. Mm-hmm. It's not in pharma's list price. None of this. It, 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 it's in the benefit design. Mm-hmm. The list price is terrible if you have to pay it and you don't have any insurance. I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we can't keep having these crazy list price increases driven by rebates. Mm-hmm. We just can't do it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so how can we stop that? So number one is engage where you live with your employer. You know, if you, if you think you're, you know, if you understand the PBM issue, I recommend, highly recommend writing your state legislators. I mean, what are we doing in our state about PBM? Yeah. Like, what are we doing here? Yeah. What are we doing in, in the state of Wisconsin about PBM pass-through, PBM transparency? What are we doing about the I think that's, I, I love what you just said there. Because that's quick, easy, simple, send an email, mm-hmm. whatever, make a call. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, I make lots of calls. I think I'm probably on some list, <laughs> but it's not scary. I mean, I know why that, if you've never done that before, it can be intimidating. It's not. And I always tell people, get in the right mindset before you do any of that. And remember, these people are your employees. Okay. So they're there because you put them there. So call and ask what they're doing. And ask what's going on with things that you're interested in. And just posing that question right there, what are we doing with this? I think is great. And then um, let them tell you. (laughs) And if you're not happy with that, go back with other questions, right? Absolutely. And if you're interested in learning, we have a 14-week class that we offer two or three times a year. We're going to have another one starting up in January called the Patients Rising Advocacy Masterclass. You can go to patientsrisingnow.org and you can learn all about it there, get on a list to be pinged or emailed when we launch registration and opening for the next one. If you're interested, it is self-directed, but there are some live things and there's also engagement, you know, a lot of live engagement. We do it within a community where we keep growing that community because it's our belief at Patients Rising that, you know, we need to form coalitions within states and districts. Every congressman I've ever sat in an office with, they'll be like, do you have a story in my district? Mm, yeah. <laughs> so that drove me, That getting that question Both at that time drove me to be like, I want 10 patient stories in every district that show the access and affordability pro- issues that patients are experiencing in this country. Mm-hmm. They're serious for many patients, especially those who use their health care. And I always yeah. call nonsense on these polls where they say 90% of the country wants us to go negotiate with Medicare. of the country is actually pretty happy with their healthcare because they don't use it that much. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so therefore, of course, 90% of the country, if somebody said, do you think we should negotiate with Medicare? I'd be like, like, yeah, sure. That sounds good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. I mean, Medicare is a big, you know, right. Big but you, when you really look at it, it's those of us who use our healthcare and need it to work and need it to cover things that don't bankrupt us. Mm, who need to take action and band together. No matter what you have, whether it's a rare disease, a chronic disease, those are the voices that we need in Washington. We need them at state capitals around the country. Yes. And and that's the mission. I've done both of these things. And I, again, just want to say to people... I, I know that can be intimidating maybe, but don't let it be. It, again, remember that, you know, they are our employees. They are there to help us. So make use of that. And oftentimes educating them on what your life looks like and what you're dealing with and how you're impacted by all of this, that speaks volumes. They don't know what they don't know. So go there, go there write to them, call them, whatever it is, but educate them on what the reality is of what they are doing in your state capital in in D.C. I know to my core that that makes a difference. I've been to many of these meetings and I've spoken with many of these um, representatives to know that they're moved by patient stories, but there's not enough people telling their patient stories. So I'm really going to- We spend an enormous amount of time in the advocacy masterclass on storytelling and how to tell a compelling story and how to focus your ask and not ask too much in one phone call or one meeting, but to ask for one thing that uh, that's actionable for them. Yeah. Because as my husband likes to say, likes to say, who works for, who's worked for many folks in, in, in Congress and other places, who's worked with many politicians, they're not that smart. And he doesn't mean they're stupid. He means they can't know everything. They can't know. They everything. can't know the wine caucus and the candy caucus and the, Right. You know, tree caucus and the smelt fish caucus. They 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 don't they can't know everything. Right. So if you're not very specific about what your ask is, then they mm-hmm. can't help you. Mm-hmm. And you want to take that time you have with us. And and meeting with the staffer is not bad. Sometimes that's better. Hundred percent. So don't look at that as like you know you're getting side rail. The staff is the one who makes most of the decisions anyway. Hundred you percent. Know? Yes. True. 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 Is there a cost to your advocacy training? Not at all. No cost at all. We are, it's, it's absolutely free and it's thorough and we offer, you know, you, I think you get a lot of bang for your non-book, but you know, you will come away really, really, um, with, with a lot. And if you have an issue where you're needing help with guidance around, you know, you've been denied or something's happened and you need some navigation help. We also have a a program on the patients rising side called patients rising concierge. Yes. I wanted to patients hear about rising, this. Yeah. Yeah. Tell patients us rising concierge.org. Um, you can probably put the links and stuff to all of mm-hmm. that in the show notes. Absolutely. But basically it's a 24 hour. You can email them at ask us anything at patients There's also a, a, a phone line where we'll get back to you within 24 hours. If Sam doesn't pick up, we only have next year. We'll have two people manning the phones, but it has grown quite a bit. We only had, we answered a thousand calls and emails in 2020. And this year by June, we'd already doubled that. So we're on track to, you know, really um, move, which is why we're adding folks in in 2020, another person in 2022. But this is where we can help you self-navigate. And we tell everyone, this may not be your last call, but we, this may not be your last call, but we hope to make it your last call. Mm, mm-hmm. We want to give you really good directions. I think Sam says it's not may not be your last call, but we want to give you really good directions so that yeah. you're like, 
on the road. We're not just going to send you a couple of links and be like, try this. We try to vet things as we. That's great. And and transportation and caregiving are the number one, number two issues with number three being benefit design issues. Uh, A lot of folks have transportation issues just getting. It's amazing. You don't think about it for those of us who have cars and we think transportation issue, but for those who don't, it's, you know. Yeah. Huge. Yes. Oh, so good. I know in the intro, I listed and listed and listed under Patients Rising. I, and I see the logo um, behind you, Patients Rising University. This is where we do educational um, modules on access and affordability issues, things that like we have a whole module on biosimilars and biologics. And because those are up and coming for many patients, they have questions about, about biosimilars. Um, the cost, you know, there's a lot of mm-hmm. issues around the biosimilar stuff. So we created that module. We have how to, you know, deal with your insurer kind of modules. That We're putting together a, a caregiving and a transportation module because those are really huge. So yeah. that's where we do like the one, the more patient directed education as opposed to the advocacy education. Mm-hmm. That's more like the patient help center. You know, if yeah. you want to learn something, something more as a patient. Right. Um, and the Institute for Patient Access and the Institute for Patient Access and Affordability Project is um, actually the Institute's been dropped on that. They should have taken that out of my bio, but it's oh. Patient Access and Affordability Project, otherwise known as PAP. Okay. And that's at accessandaffordability.org. And I call that sort of our think tanky, mm. you know, Talk place. Talk wonky, we, right? <laughs> or we, we get really wonky over there. Yeah. We have three working groups next year with our, um, with our corporate funders. One of them is health technology assessment um, for rare diseases. We're talking about biosimilars and biologics and education campaigns and and how to talk to patients and providers about those. And also um, the final one is benefit design. We're doing a lot on benefit design because I think benefit design is is really where the focus needs to be. I think there's been a lot of smoke and mirrors about drug pricing and the real nut and bolt cost issues of healthcare all come down to the benefit design. And that's where, you know, yeah, we focus. Is that something that um, eventually we'll be able to s- uh, send our a link to our HR director? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, one of the things, you know, some of the things that we're developing there are, you know, training and information for age, you know, for employers. Mm-hmm. We're trying to do some lanes of education and outreach specifically to employers. Um, We've co-hosted some you know, webinars and things at hr.com, but I don't think that's meaningful enough. I, I really want to get in there and talk to them. Yeah. You know, and figure and bring pharma to the table and other providers that are, you know, that they're trying to negotiate with and, and things like that. I, I just think that there is a, there's a dialogue to be had. Everybody may not agree all the time mm-hmm. and there will definitely be differences, but how can we move forward to make it better for patients? The insurers aren't going to do it on their own and nor the PBMs. They're just not. Correct. They just keep up, you know, they just keep putting things in as, as roadblocks so that they can tell their investors. People like to say this about Pfizer and Moderna and everybody who's done all the vaccines. But, you know, United Healthcare had like a one point four billion dollar quarter mm. of profit. I mean, that's mm. insane mm. in a quarter. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I, I just think, you know, I'm not against anyone making money, but when patients are struggling. Yeah, I, I, you know, and things off aren't the backs covered. of whom I think is the question, right? Exactly, exactly. You know, what are you paying your premiums for if nothing's covered? Amen. What in the world? Oh my god! You know, 
I could talk on this well, subject right here a long time. I have a well, long Well, here's the thing. A lot of times now the formularies are designed that it's like, okay, you either get this, you have, here's the formulary. And if it's not this formulary, it's not covered. Well, that didn't used to be how it was. Mm-hmm. There was a formulary. And if you got stuff off there, it was cheaper. Exactly. But you could always, there was always a price to get something off the formulary. Right. It was, was going to be cheaper than the list price of the drug. It was tiered and your yeah. your physician had more of a voice in it. Your physician had more of a voice that would be like, look, I know this is going to be a hundred dollar copay a month for you for this because this is an expensive drug, but you know, I think this is worth it. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I just think physicians don't have enough of voice there. And Amen. I've had physicians flat up tell me, especially in the rheumatology space, that they just look at what's covered before they even prescribe a drug. That is so sad. I know. Which is I sad have, because yeah. that's that's PBMs dictating to rheumatologists what they're supposed to give the patient. Exactly. Yeah. This is upside down for sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally upside down. So oh my God. I know I'm maybe Thank God rambling we, on. No, this is this is so interesting and enlightening and sad and depressing. <laughs> but instead of being, you know, sad and depressed, just like when you get a bad diagnosis, you know, kind of gather yourself, learn about it, and then figure out how you're going to tackle it. And I think you give us some great paths to learn how to get involved and make change. I mean, just sitting back and bitching about it isn't going to do anything. Trust me, I know I've done it. But <laughs> get in there and try and try and affect some change. And Patients Rising gives you a great path to get some training and learn how to do that. And, um, you know, there's something so disempowering when you get this, when you get a diagnosis, right? And particularly chronic illness and it's, uh, this is empowering. This is how to feel empowered. If you have nothing else in your life where you feel empowered, here's a great opportunity and it's free. So get some training and get out there and kick some ass and make some change. And it is often slow to make change. So if you don't feel like it's going to, you're going to see change um, that's going to be, you know, effective in in your illness. Well, what about all the others? What about your kids and grandkids and everybody else too, right? So. Right. Well, you have to be happy with incremental relationship building and change. You can't yes. just expect to walk into somebody's office and have a bill passed or have this happen. It's, it's about relationship building. It's, exactly. It's about building relationships. It's about, you know, creating asks and building your ask around something that's achievable mm-hmm. in a timeline. It may not be achievable in this session, but maybe by right. 2023. Like if you're advocating in Texas, I'll use an example. They only meet every other year. Well, you better get busy in 2022 because they have like 60 or 90 days or whatever it is Texas meets for in 2023. And then they're gone again for two years. Yeah. So, you know, you have to work in 2022, even though they're not in session. Yeah. And the legislating. One of the best points you made, I think, is that it is about relationships. So it's not a one and done. It's not a one hit thing. You you get, like my mom used to say, you get much more with honey than with vinegar. And that's go, be kind, speak nicely, be educated. And, you know, you go back and you go back and you go back and you go back and you build a relationship. I mean, you wouldn't walk into a party anywhere and just go, hey, hi, I'm Kathy. This is what I need and I need it right now. I mean, you go in and you introduce yourself and you, you know, talk and you get to know each other and you work uh, together to try and affect change. And again, I just want to go back to how empowering this could 
be for you. You could really feel like you're doing something in, you know, a disease state where otherwise you might not feel like you can do much. So I high this one well, exactly. Like and another thing, <laughs> yeah. And another thing you really have to think about when you're going in, especially from a partisan standpoint, is if you if you're if you know if your stripes are are, are red or or blue, and you live in a district that's got the other stripe as the as the person, you really need to build that relationship anyway. Right. Yes. You need to be supportive anyway. You need to put your personal political hat away. When you're advocating, because as far as I'm concerned, this is a non healthcare is nonpartisan. And we be. need all the champions we can get, no matter yes. you know what party they're 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 in. Yeah. Um, and that kind of relationship building will benefit you, even if it switches. You know, if you live in a purple district and your person may may switch more often than some others, mm-hmm. it's still important, you know, to build those relationships. Absolutely. Totally agree. Terry, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing all this with us today and for everything that you're doing on behalf of the chronic illness communities, including ours. If people want to learn more about you, Patients Rising, where do they go? Give us your URLs, socials, all Patients, that. The main one, go to patientsrising.org. Okay. At Patients Rising is our you know, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. Okay, cool. um, and Patients Rising Now, that's our advocacy and policy website. That's our C4 in patientsrisingnow.org. And from those two, you can get all the social media URLs and all the programs are very clearly laid out there. So excellent. I would say good. Those are the two places to go. Excellent. And I want to throw out a challenge to everybody to go there, learn more, and then sign up, get yourself educated, and then and then feel feel empowered by your story. Tell your story, share it and make those incremental asks on behalf of all of us. Thanks again, Terry. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kathy. I appreciate it as well. Thanks for having me on. Quick shout out to Steve Woodward at podcastingeditor.com for the fantastic work on this podcast, including editing, show notes, and ingenious ideas. If you'd like help with your podcast, whether you're just starting out or an old pro, visit podcastingeditor.com and tell Steve I sent you. everybody. I really appreciate you listening to the FUMS podcast show. Be sure to subscribe to it so you won't miss an episode. You can do that right on the website at FUMSnow.com. While you're there, sign up for the free email list so you'll be among the first to know of any new findings in MS research, new therapies and products, as well as any blog posts and podcast episodes I release. Want to chat with others in the FUMS community? Join us on Facebook at FUMS Now. Thanks again, and don't forget to talk to the stupid disease as it deserves. Tell it FUMS every day.